listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and run to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. We're continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Uh, Paul, you will remember, is uh, writing in response to the Corinthians asking for help on an array of practical and theological subjects, and they're looking uh, for direction from Paul. So far, uh, he has dealt with sinful divisions within the church uh, and the pride uh, that stands behind that division. He has dealt with sexual immorality and the need for loving, faithful church discipline. He has addressed questions uh, connected to marriage and singleness and divorce. Last week we talked about relationship status, and there are some here today whose relationship status has recently changed. Good to have the newlyweds here. I saw them in a little bit ago, Jared and Hannah and Lauren's here today, so if you want to check out the ring, I'm sure she'd be glad to show that to you. There it is. Yeah, it's it glistening in the light over there. Um, and so we've been talking about uh, relationships and about some difficult subjects. In fact, I had an interesting thing happen to me yesterday evening. I, uh, I, I walk a lot. Uh, typically, I walk in the mornings, but uh, I was walking uh, yesterday afternoon kind of late. It was kind of warm and uh, walking through my neighborhood. And a little girl, don't even know her, sweetest thing, she came running out and gave me a bottle of water. I just thought, and then I kind of, I'm like, just, do I look that bad? Like, I mean, it's... I mean, <laughs> I thought I was doing okay, but I, I used the water for sure. Uh, but then beyond that, I'm, I'm walking over to the other, uh, the south side, we call it, of Georgetown. And my buddy Nick, uh, Nick Rodriguez back there, he come rolling up on his bike. And he's totally embarrassed back there now. Eight or nine years old. And here's the cool thing. Nick said, what are we going to learn about tomorrow in church? Isn't that the coolest thing ever? And I was super glad he didn't ask me that a couple of weeks ago. If you've been following this series, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I said, what well, we're going to talk about eating meat that's uh, been offered to idols. <laughs> he goes, what? <laughs> so I tried to explain. I said, really, what Paul is going to teach us is about uh, not uh, valuing our rights and our freedoms uh, over and above other people, uh, that we should love others more than we love our, even our own rights and our own liberties. And so here in chapter 8, Paul is... Take a big, deep breath now. Moving to the next subject uh, about which they have written to him. And that's why he uses this this language, now concerning food offered to idols. Uh, In a previous chapter, he said, now concerning those things about which you wrote to me. Uh, And so you see it again here in verse number four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to to idols. In the original language, in the Greek, it's actually just one word. That entire phrase, this food or meat offered to idols, uh, is idilothitos. And so if they said, hey, let's go grab some idilothitos, um, they would essentially be saying, let's go get some idol meat or some sacrificial meat. Uh, that would be the idea. Now, I don't imagine that many of us uh, are concerned all that much with whether our steak uh, has been used in the worship of idols. 
Uh, I want to clear the air right off the bat this morning. I am not about to preach a message that would even suggest to you for a moment that it's sinful to go to Hutchins, okay? You don't have to worry about that. We're not going there, all right? Uh, uh, But I recognize that this specific issue is not a problem with most of us. It's not something we wrestle with. Uh, However, we certainly have missions partners uh, who deal with similar situations on a regular basis because of the culture in which they are ministering. Uh, but, uh, but not for most of us in our contemporary context uh, and, and place. And yet, I think we're going to see some principles that the Apostle Paul articulates as he helps the Corinthians navigate uh, their particular set of issues here. It's extremely relevant for us today. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll look at the entire chapter today. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many little g-gods and many little l-lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... You will not be encouraged. Will he not be encouraged if, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So, in the cultural context of Corinth, you've got to understand that meat was available in an ancient city like Corinth in two main places. Uh, first, you could go to the Agora or the main marketplace where you could purchase meat directly from a meat vendor, as it were. They were uh, that was usually the more expensive option of, of the two. A less expensive option uh, was to go to one of the many pagan temples in the city where meat would be offered there in sacrifice every day and the portions of the meat not used in sacrifice would be sold to the public. Often this would take place uh, behind the temple. In some cases, uh, there were even temple dining rooms where you could go maybe for a business meeting or a particular celebration and you could have a meal using essentially the, the leftovers from idol sacrifice. Now remember, the Corinthians have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ out of a pagan background of many gods, polytheism. Some of them understood that since there is only one God, whatever pagan superstition may say to the contrary, that meat offered to idols is just meat. 
It's just meat. And they felt free in their conscience to go and eat the meat without a second thought, knowing that it's just meat. Others, who maybe more recently had converted from paganism, found this practice unthinkable. Uh, The associations with their old life were perhaps too raw or or too vivid. And for them, eating meat in the temple precincts, eating meat that they knew had been offered to idols, violated their conscience, and they simply couldn't do it. And uh, much like we've already seen here in our study of 1 Corinthians, these two groups in the church at Corinth were beginning to look at one another with some suspicion, and this was causing division again, much like other issues had caused division in the church at Corinth. Those with weaker consciences, we would say, would, would not eat, uh, and it felt that those who did eat were categorically wrong. They would essentially say, you're compromising with the world. That was their perspective. Those who would eat, or those with stronger consciences, we might say, who did eat the meat, felt that the weaker brothers and sisters were imposing needless and excessive restrictions on their freedom, and they felt judged. And so in Corinth, it actually went a little further than that because of the strong believers. By peer pressure, apparently they were persuading some of the weaker believers to go against their own conscience and apparently were being brought along to these temple dining rooms or even to to a dinner perhaps in someone's private home where meat that had been offered to idols was being served. And their consciences were stinging. No doubt the stronger believers thought that they were helping out. You know, get the weaker Christians past these needless restrictions and so forth. But as we're going to see, Paul tells them that they were needlessly wounding their fellow brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. So that's the situation in Corinth. Now, again, while that's not a specific circumstance that we deal with, uh, this kind of thing is not common uh, to our culture, I think we do have some contemporary parallels that we need to wrestle with today. And the principles that Paul provides about the nature of Christian liberty and its limits are timelessly important for all of us. And so let's let's talk about this liberty thing for just a moment. Um, There are varying views on Christian liberty, and I'm not talking about so much politically or as it relates to the culture itself, although that's certainly a very important issue, especially in today's culture. What we're really talking about is the freedom that we as followers of Jesus Christ have as it relates to certain matters. Uh, Certain matters where, for example, uh, Scripture is not clear or doesn't give us a a specific uh, directive in that particular area. And so we have some freedom. And there are abuses in this. Like anything else, there are those who have extreme uh, legalistic views on a lot of things, and then there are those on the other end of the spectrum who, I mean, just hold to license, man. It's just kind of like, do whatever. And we've already seen some of that mentality in the church at Corinth as it related to sexual matters and, and going in with these temple prostitutes and some of those sorts of things. And so these two extremes were fairly common, uh, much like they are today, even in the Corinthian culture. I would say it this way, if you want to call it this, the secret sauce, so to speak, of growing Christian life is to make sure that biblical truth makes it from your head to your heart. From your head to your heart. No matter how many books you have read, no matter how many Bible studies you've done, no matter how doctrinally savvy you may think you are, all of your knowledge will be useless unless it makes that 18-inch commute from your head to your heart. Your theoretical convictions must become spiritual reality. 
We would say it this way, your orthodoxy must become orthopraxy. It's why James tells us, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. If I've noticed anything over the last 30-some years of pastoral ministry is that we've got churches, particularly here in America, that are filled with people who are bloated with knowledge. Got a lot of knowledge, done lots of Bible studies. You could check up, you could give me a long list of all the different things. Nothing wrong with that. We believe very strongly in the study of Scripture, obviously, and, and all of those things, critically important. But the problem is, it's never made its way from your head to your heart. You know all the stuff, you've got the information, but you've never really fully put it into practice. That's a problem. That's a problem because our faith is to be lived out. It's not just head knowledge. And so it's not as if you're going to you know, someday hopefully get into heaven, but in order to do so, you're going to have to pass some sort of an academic exam you know, where you've got to know all the right answers and be able to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and everything, but never really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want to see our orthodoxy become orthopraxy. I want us to live it out in a practical way. I, just as an illustration, I can, I can describe to you this morning a piece of fruit. Uh, I like citrus particularly. Uh, and whenever we lived in South Texas at the kind of the, the heart of the valley, uh, you could drive just south of us and you could see these huge citrus orchards. And we would often get fresh fruit. And uh, I can measure that piece of fruit, I can weigh it, I can trace its contours, I can read about it, I can study its biology, I can learn how to, to grow the fruit, I can learn how to harvest the fruit, I can recommend the fruit to you and to others, but, but what use is really all of that to me? What's the point of, of dwelling so intensely, accumulating so much knowledge about fruit if, after all, I never taste the fruit myself? Authentic Christianity tastes the fruit. It's never content with simply knowing. It always wants to, to taste, to put it into practice. And so understand it this way. True Christian knowledge, known truly, always leads to deepening Christian love. To deepening Christian love. If you don't have that, what you will tend to do many times is take your biblical knowledge and beat people over the head with it. It becomes super abrasive, and you will always tend toward an unhealthy view of Scripture and, and even full-on legalism. And so you'll go around like some sort of a religious referee looking to throw the flag on anybody and everybody who doesn't agree with you on every little thing, doesn't see every little thing the way that you see it. And so that's essentially Paul's argument here in verses 1 through 4. Paul is, again, he's quoting the Corinthians. We've seen that a number of times throughout our study here at 1 Corinthians. The ESV includes here the, uh, the quotation marks, the reference from the Corinthians' original letter. Uh, you'll see it there. All of us possess knowledge, they were saying. These, again, are the, are the stronger, uh, perhaps more mature believers at Corinth. We all possess knowledge. If you look down at verse number 4, uh, you'll even see the content of their knowledge. They know that an idol has no real existence, uh, that there is no God but one. Uh, they've been gloriously converted from polytheism to worship the one true and living God. They've come to know Jesus Christ. They know that the worship of many gods is nothing but foolishness and superstition. There is only one God, the triune God of the Holy Scriptures, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you would go, 
man, so far so good. They're doctrinally sound. But there's a problem for these strong believers at Corinth. Because if you look at the text again, this liberty, this knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. Puffs up. Isn't that human nature many times? Well, the more I know, the more I want to let people know how much I know. Right? And you can abuse that many times. And so he says, this knowledge of yours, this so-called knowledge, it puffs up. But love builds up. It edifies. So if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Uh, it's not unlike uh, young preachers who are finishing up their theological education and they're ready to launch out into ministry and they pretty much think that they've got it all figured out. I can remember us sitting around having these deeply theological discussions thinking that you know, we had, had figured out things that, that, that you know, uh, our Christian fathers hadn't yet figured out. It didn't take me but about two months in the ministry to realize I got a lot to learn. <laughs> I got a lot to learn. And so these Corinthians, they were allowing this knowledge, this liberty, this freedom that they, they felt that they had to, to puff them up with some pride. We've already seen that language earlier here in 1 Corinthians. It's kind of like an undercooked meal. You grill some chicken, but, it, but it's still a little raw in the middle. You know it looks really good. It's got those you know, sear marks on it from the grill, but it's going to make you sick in the end. Knowledge and liberty without love is an undercooked meal that will prove toxic in your Christian life. And that's Paul's point here. He's not saying here that knowledge is irrelevant or that it is unimportant. He's not, he's not playing love and liberty against one another as though to say, well, you all have knowledge. What you really need isn't knowledge. You need love. So don't worry about the truth. Just love each other. That, that, that's not what he's saying at all. That's it, a fairly popular uh, sentiment today, but that is not what Paul's argument is uh, here at all. He wants you to know deeply. We have to say it this way. You, you cannot love what you do not know. You, you can't fully love the Lord if you don't know the Lord. <laughs> and so, in fact, he wants you to know that God has revealed himself to us in a book that we call the Bible and he wants you to know it and to learn it and to study it and to store it up in your mind and to identify its doctrines and to see how uh, it, it connects uh, each to the other so that you see this coherent system of truth that magnifies God and humbles us and melts our hearts with love for others and compassion for the lost and propels the church in service and its mission. Paul wants you to know truth. And you will never grow in your Christian life beyond the limits of what you know of his word and of his truth. And so he is not saying, don't worry about knowing, just get busy loving. It's not his point. What he is saying is that no matter how much you know, if it isn't given expression in love, and if it doesn't generate love in your heart for others, it, you do not yet know as you ought to know. And he does more. He then simply offered them a corrective. He offers some positive help. And if you look down at verse number three, you can see it. He says this, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, the way Paul has been arguing so far, the structure of his rhetoric, it actually leads us to expect him to say, if anyone loves God, he knows God. But Paul's point is actually far more radical than that. 
Paul's point is, if you love God, you only love him because he first knows you. As Christians, God knows us with more than just a list of facts and figures. He knows us with that knowledge of loving, intimate fellowship and communion. He has drawn us into fellowship with himself by his saving grace. And he's showered his love upon us, adopting us as his children, giving us a a new nature, a new identity, uniting us to his son. He knows us intimately and profoundly. And being known like that makes us love him. The Corinthians, Paul is saying, you ought to be able to say with the Apostle John, we love him because he first loved us. So the way that God loves us makes us love him. That's why we often say that worship is a response. It's a response to who God is. It's a response to the work that he's doing in our lives. And so I'm always concerned when people say, well, I just can't get my worship on. Whatever that means. And I'm not just talking about here in the corporate gathering. I'm talking about as you're driving down the road, as you're working in the yard, as you're, whatever you're doing, you should be able to worship. It may not necessarily be in song, but your worship should be a response to Almighty God for who He is and what He's doing in your life. And that's the idea here. So ask yourself this. Does the way that I know Christian truth so affect me that others are attracted or are they repelled? Are others made to love me by the way truth changes me? Do I know in such a way that that, that others are attracted to the, the faith that I have in Jesus Christ and my relationship with him? See, my belief is this. As we study scripture, our faith should be contagious. Contagious Christianity. Because as we are changed by the power of the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit of God, hopefully those around us will see us loving them the way that Christ loves us, and they will go, now that's attractive. This person isn't coming at me every time I see him with a big megaphone trying to beat me over the head with the Bible. They're just loving me sacrificially. And so Paul here talks about liberty, and he he, he bores in a little deeper into this idea of knowledge. And if you look at verses 4 through 6, he focuses a little more on that. And and Paul here is substantially agreeing with those believers at Corinth who felt that they had freedom in their conscience to go and eat in the temple dining rooms or to eat meat offered to idols. He agrees with them that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So it's as if he says, oh yes, you're quite right. Even though there are many so-called little g-gods, whether the heavenly beings of the Greek uh, uh, pantheon or the so-called gods of the Roman emperors who lived on earth, whatever they may be, yet for us, that is, for those of us who have come to know the truth, we understand that there is only one God. Yes, check. You are correct. Anybody who says that you can play love and knowledge off against each other has to reckon with verse number 6 here as if to say Paul was interested in promoting Christian love and doesn't care about doctrine. Because in this very context, in the middle of his argument about love and knowledge, love and liberty, he offers us this rich, profound statement of theology. Paul says, "...for there is one God." 
the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And if you're familiar with Paul's writing, that probably sounds familiar to you because he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 11. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. For from God and through God and to God are all things. God is the origin, the agent, the end of everything that exists. Alpha and Omega, the originator. He conceived and purposes all that there is. He is the agent, the one who makes all things. And he is the end of all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. And Paul is using those same categories here. It's a theological statement. It's theology 101. And so Paul is certainly not saying that what you believe, your knowledge, is not important as long as you've got love. No. These go together. I can't help but wonder if what he's really doing is saying to the rather smug, stronger Christians at Corinth who are eager to demonstrate that they are the ones who really are in the know, it's as if he's saying, oh, oh, you think you know. Well, let me take you to the edge of a chasm of majesty and glory that is absolutely incomprehensible. Let's talk about who God really is. You think you know? If you think you know, you do not yet know as you ought. Behold your God and put your hand over your mouth and place yourself in the dust. Behold your God and learn humility. I think that's what he's doing. He's saying, yep, you're quite right. Doctrinally, sure. The truth that you so glibly parrot while you boast and congratulate yourselves ought to place you in the dust, in humility, and melt your heart and make you adore rather than make your claim to your liberty, even while you wound those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowledge. Love go together. Let's look number three at love. So he's taking these two things together, liberty and love together, liberty, the knowledge, and now love. So Paul talks about uh, what it means to really love. Having laid out the problem, uh, helping the more mature, more knowledgeable Corinthians rein in their self-confidence and their pride, now he tackles the problem more directly. If you look at verses 7 through 13, you'll see it there. I expect that they thought Paul was uh, on their team. Surely Paul's on team meat, right? <laughs> team meat, yeah, that's, that's going to be Paul. Yeah, you're quite right. Now, you weaker believers at Corinth, you need to apply your theology. You need to go along with the, to these dining halls and you need to, uh, and to get over yourselves. Don't be so weak and limp-wristed. That may have been what they thought Paul was going to say, but... They're in for a bit of a shock because that's not what he said. If you look at verse number 7, some of them, having weaker consciences, were being led to eat idol meat against their conscience. Maybe they were being made to feel ashamed because they weren't participating with the stronger, more knowledgeable, mature leaders in the congregation who would eat at the temple dining halls all the time. And yet as they went along, their consciences were screaming at them the whole time, don't do it, this isn't right. And because of their associations with the, their old paganism, just too raw for them, too fresh, it made them feel unclean and they were ashamed. 
Now, Paul is quick to say, if you look at verse number 8, that the food itself is really not the issue. Eating the food or not eating the food is neither here nor there. Food will not commend you to God, he says. We're not worse off if we do not eat and better off if we do. You might think he says to the strong believers at Corinth, your superior knowledge allowing you to eat this meat with a clear conscience makes you look good. But check this out. God is not impressed. God is not impressed. Verse number 9. While you're congratulating yourselves on how mature you are as you chow down on your Zeus burger or your Apollo dog, whatever they were eating at the temple dining rooms, while you're doing that, their consciences are screaming at them that they are failing and compromising with the world. And you don't seem to care. What a failure of love. These are your brothers and sisters. And so in verses 11 and 12, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That is strong language. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You've undermined one of God's central tools for your growth in grace. You've undermined the role of conscience. You've helped this weak Christian ignore their conscience, and that is never a safe thing to do. You're imposing on them what their conscience condemns. Understand this. Christ gave up all for them, and yet you won't give up your liberties for them. Are you better than Jesus in your demand to have your rights recognized? Won't you surrender rather than stand on your Christian liberties? Won't you surrender your liberties for the good of those whom you are called to love? And Paul's conclusion in verse number 13 is it's a little radical, possibly even hyperbole, but it makes the point, and I hope you see it this morning. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Now, that's not a great thought for a lot of us. But essentially, he's saying, if necessary, I'll become a vegetarian. If the cost of loving my brother is giving up this thing that I love, I will gladly give it up because I love him more than this thing. That's what Paul's saying. I'll give it up because I love you more than I love it. Love, understand this, if you don't hear anything else today, love constrains liberty. Christian love constrains liberty. My knowledge of the truth is not the only criterion upon which I base my behavior, but my love for my brothers and my sisters in Christ directs and constrains what I know and helps me live it out in a way that is a blessing and never a burden. This is how Jesus loved us, isn't it? Giving it all up for us that we might be free. So what is it that you won't give up? And if your heart is pushing back right now, there's that thing or those things that are coming to your mind right now. Could it be that you've discovered an idol that has a grip on your heart? What is it that you refuse to give up for the love of your brother and sister in Christ? And again, we don't have this specific issue in our culture and context, but I suspect that there's 
a fairly lengthy list of things that apply here. Things that Scripture may not be explicit on. Various things where we do have some liberty in Christ. But is the most important thing to you your liberty or your love for others? The language here is that of a stumbling block. You would hope and pray that anybody who claims to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they know themselves that they've been fully forgiven, they're free in Christ, that they would want to do whatever it took to see someone come to Jesus Christ or to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm not suggesting that none of these things should be discussed, that we shouldn't have honest conversations face-to-face about some of those matters and what that may look like. And we can come down on different sides of, of certain issues. It relates to some of the freedoms and the liberties that we have in Christ. But if there's something that you're clinging to with so much energy, so much passion, that it even supersedes your love for your fellow human beings, that just may be an idol to you. I want to close with this illustration. Harry Ironside was at one time the pastor of the great Moody Church in Chicago, and he was on a an outing with various folks from the church there. And one of the people with whom he was spending some time at this outing was a man named Mr. Ali, who was originally raised as a devout Muslim. They were passing out some sandwiches at this picnic, I think it was, and this young lady uh, gave gave some to the pastor, to Mr. Ironside, and then turned to Mr. Ali and asked, uh, would you like a sandwich? And his response was, well, what kind are they? And she replied, well, there's pulled pork, and there's ham. He replied, well, do you, do you have any beef? She said, no. He said, what about lamb? No. Any fish? No. Well, then he said, thank you very much. I'll refrain. To which the young lady responded, why, Mr. Ali, you surprised me. Are you so under the law that you cannot eat pork? Don't you know that a Christian has liberty to eat any kind of meat? And he said, I am, in fact, at liberty to eat, but I am also at liberty to refrain. And he went on to explain. He said, you know, I was brought up as a strict Muslim. My father, who's nearly 80 years old now, is still a Muslim. And every few years, I go back home to give an account of my tea business, a business of which my father is actually the owner, and to visit with my family back home. And always when I get home, I know how I'll be greeted. The friends will be sitting inside, and my father will come to the door when it's announced that I have arrived, and my father will ask, son, have the infidels taught you to eat their filthy hog meat yet? And I will say, no, father, pork has never passed my lips. Then I can go in and have the opportunity, perhaps, to preach Christ to them. But if I took one of your sandwiches, the next time I went home, I would have to answer my father's question honestly, and as a result, probably not have the opportunity to preach Christ to them. You see, love constrains liberty. Love directs knowledge. And how we live out our Christian lives for the good of others 
so that we can see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and grow in that relationship with him is what's most important. We are to love as Christ has loved us, giving up his rights that we may be free. Love constrains liberty. I wonder this morning, does love constrain liberty in your life? Does what you know make you beautiful, contagious, even in your faith? Or does it repel? Does it push away? Is it a stumbling block to those around you? That's the call of Scripture here. Let the truth travel that 18 inches from your head to your heart and bear fruit in the way that you serve to the glory and the praise of God alone. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Again, we recognize today that the particular issue here, the specific issue that Paul is addressing to the church at Corinth may seem a little strange, even foreign to us. But I think if we're all completely honest, we could identify some areas where there is strong application. What are some liberties that you are clinging to, holding to, with such passion, with such fervor, that you are willing to allow those things to be a stumbling block to those around you. Paul is not suggesting here that we should live our lives just to please other people. The heart behind his teaching here is that we should live our lives in such a way that we honor God and glorify him. Even in some of these areas where we can have differences of opinion, Maybe things where your conscience isn't violated at all while it becomes obvious that others are. How can you faithfully cling to the truth all the while love others in the way that Christ loves us? Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our orthodoxy become orthopraxy, that we would live it out in a practical way that ultimately honors and glorifies you and is a blessing and a help and an aid in seeing others come to know you and grow in their relationship with you. So Lord, if there's anything in our lives that we're clinging to as a matter of liberty, Lord, help us to weigh that in the balance of your great love for us, your sacrificial death for us, as we strive in every way to honor and glorify you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.